Hey, it's me, Chris T, and welcome to Job Story number 25. This one is part one of an interview with author Jesse P. Pollock whose new book is called The Acid King, and it revisits some infamous murders that happened in Northport on Long Island in 1984. If you think you know the story, you actually don't. And I'm breaking this interview up into two parts because I spoke to Jesse for just about an hour and a half. So I'll bring you the first 45 minutes or so this week and then next week, the other half of the interview, because next week is Election Day, and I'm going to be volunteering all day. So uh, here is part one of my sit-down with the author, Jesse P. Pollock, all about his new book called The Acid King, which is available from Simon True, a new young adult true crime imprint, available at simonandschuster.com slash Teen, and then a little later on, Jesse talks about his uh, job methodology because this is, after all, a podcast about jobs and working. But here's Jesse P. Pollock and our conversation all about the Acid King, part one. Jesse Pollock was a guest on my old WFMU show a while back with his uh, book, Death on the Devil's Teeth, co written with Mark Moran of Weird New Jersey fame. Um, which was about a murder of a young girl in New Jersey that had, uh, let's say, satanic overtones. And now he's back with a new book called The Acid King, which is about the Ricky Castle, Gary Lawler's murder. And um, I was still living on Long Island at the time, and I remember this becoming an all-consuming news story because it happened in Northport on the north shore of Long Island. So... Uh, what made you want to go back into this case that a lot of people probably thought was uh, well covered by a book that came out years ago called Say You Love Satan and uh, some very prominent articles, including in the Rolling Stone, which you get into in the book. Why delve back into the story of what took place in Northport? Well, uh, it, it was kind of an interesting um, journey from Devil's Teeth to Acid King. Um, basically... What had happened was my agent um, was having lunch with someone over at Simon & Schuster, and they were getting ready to launch this new true crime line called Simon True. And it's sort of the YA equivalent of other true crime lines out there. They're really trying to hone in on the teen market. And basically, um, this editor over at Simon & Schuster said to my agent, do you know anyone that could write some teen-centric true crime. And I had just come off of Devil's Teeth, which was about a teenage victim. And my agent said, yeah, you know, Jesse Pollock, one of my clients, could probably whip something up. So she gave him some guidelines, and one of them was, it has to be a story about a victim and a killer who are both teenagers. And the Casa story came right to mind. So at first I thought, okay, 
uh, you know, Say You Love Satan um, came out in 1987, you know, for a while. That was the definitive book on the case. And I figured, okay, well, this will be sort of an updated telling. It's for a different audience. And, uh, you know, I'll see what I can bring to it with modern research facilities. Because in 1987, it goes without saying there was no Google. Um, the bulk of research, aside from direct interviews, was mostly an afternoon spent at the public library with the microfiche machine. So I figured, okay, well, you know, with all of these things that are at my disposal, I can update it. And almost immediately, as soon as I started interviewing people from Northport, it became very obvious that that book, Say You Love Satan, was just a load of shit. Basically, the author, David St. Clair, went to Northport, tried talking to people. Um, it was right after the murder happened. People understandably did not want to discuss it. So he was largely rebuffed. And instead of going back to his publisher and saying, listen, no one wants to talk about this. And all I have is the Rolling Stone piece and some newspaper articles. Maybe we should just cancel this project. He just said, fuck it. And uh, made up everything. And what he didn't make up for the book, he plagiarized from David Breskin's Rolling Stone article, Kids in the Dark, and from all of the Newsday and New York Times and New York Daily News coverage. So, um, you know, if you grew up somewhere that was not Northport, you would look at Say You Love Satan and go, well, this is this is a national book. It's, it's published by Dell. This must be the true story. They fact-checked these things, right? And they didn't. So I saw it as an opportunity to give these people their story back because they had been exploited and lied about for over 30 years. And as I delved further and further into it, it you know, I really hate to, you know, harp on the old adage, but the truth was really stranger than fiction in this case. Talking with Jesse Pollock, the new book is called The Acid King. Evil Dwells Among Friends. And a very great job, by the way. I wanted to compliment you because... Uh, it's a page turner and it's a page turner because um, you think you know the story and then you find out you don't know the story. As you're pointing out, I mean, there there was a lot of misinformation in this case and it goes way back to the initial Suffolk County police press release, as you point mm -hmm. out in the book. And this idea of the linkage between this uh, brutal murder and satanic overtones again, the, the satanic connection, the satanic panic as you put it in the book. And I, I know mm -hmm. this interview is going to go all over the place. Uh, and because this is a podcast mainly about jobs and working, we're going to get into a little bit later about your your methodology, how you go about the systematic peeling back of this particular onion and mm -hmm. and your methods in, in drilling down. But I want to focus in on something you just said, because in a, in a town like Northport and in a town like Amityville, where, where I was born... Mm -hmm. People don't want to talk about the things that took place there that are infamous. Not at all. I know when I tried to do a radio show on one particular anniversary of the quote-unquote Amityville Horror, I got a lot of pushback. Nobody in an official capacity would talk about it. And so how, how did you find it all these years later when you went to revisit this story? Were people still reluctant? Were they more forthcoming? Did they feel it was time to get the true version out there? It was a mixed bag, but it was largely a struggle. Um, and I don't blame any of these people whatsoever for not trusting me. You know, as I just discussed, um, the last book was a total uh, snow job. Once I really, you know, 
sort of kept at it. I persisted. Like, I didn't harass these people, but I made a point to tell them, look, I understand why you don't trust me, and you have every right not to. You don't know me, and every other journalist you've talked to or has tried to talk to you completely bungled this story. But times have changed. Uh, legal reviews for fact-checking are rigorous now. Like, for the Acid King, I went through two of them, and it took six weeks. Um, but I really want to tell the true story here. I'm not interested in, um, ghost stories and, and mythic tales of teenage Satan cults that didn't exist. Um, I want the final word to be out there while the people who lived it are still alive. Because, you know, one of the big things with this story is, uh, this was largely a murder that was pretty mundane it was kids stabbing each other in the woods over drugs but because one of those kids ricky casso um talked about satan while getting high with his friends and listened to black sabbath he was famously arrested wearing an acdc shirt um it got by the way a, a bootleg acdc bootleg <laughs> yes though those were always the best ones yeah. too my my folks did that for uh for a little bit around the same time in the early 80s my my mother and father were both artists they went to uh art college in Newark and my mom built um a silkscreen press in the apartment they shared and they would make uh you know these concert tees and you know sell them out of the car in the parking lot of uh Madison Square Garden and that's where that Casso shirt came from and if anyone's ever tried you know, finding one to buy for themselves, now they understand why it's next to impossible. I've never found another one that's exactly like the one he was arrested in. I found one that was close. It's a, it almost looks like a Bad News Bears kind of jersey. It's got the the navy blue uh, sleeves and stuff. It's a jersey tee. But, um, but yeah, it, that, it, you know, he gets arrested with ACDC and a demon face on his shirt and the media just ran with it. But do you think the Amityville horror case primed the pump for that, that people were predisposed to see? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't just that. I mean, the Amityville horror case helped and this story has its own um, weird little personal connection to it, but it was... Oh my God, everything leading up to this. You had Rosemary's Baby. You had The Exorcist, Amityville Horror. And th this had been um, from the late 60s all the way up until 84 when this murder happened. So you had 15 years of pop culture harping on this whole idea of, oh, you know, well, we're not going to talk about vampires and werewolves anymore. Let's talk about you know, demonic possessions, satanic cults, and all this stuff. And the religious... As you point out, it's a far more mundane reason. In in the Amityville Horror, by the mm -hmm. way, when I say Amityville Horror case, I mean Ronald DeFeo's murdering of his entire family. I don't mean yep. the subsequent Jay Anson uh, Lutz's nonsense about de demonic possession and mm -hmm. evil houses. I mean Ronald DeFeo covering up the theft of $10,000 from his father, which he wanted to spend on, on drugs, on heroin, by murdering everybody as they slept. That's the case I'm referring to. Yeah, and and that was another one that everyone ran with thanks to that. Well, it all started with a Reader's Digest article, didn't it? Wasn't that the first thing that the, uh, the Lutzes sold their story to? I think it was a Reader's Digest piece. I think it was something like, Our House is Haunted, and it snowballed into the book deal, the movie deal. 
God, we've got probably 120 sequels to the damn thing by now. Yeah, but, we're um, still living with it. I don't doubt there'll be a Netflix series at some point. Uh, but mm-hmm. there is another connection, too. Didn't Ricky Casso end up at South Oaks at one point where Ronald DeFeo is now uh, still being held? Yeah, he did when um, his parents tried helping him get off of his uh, his little drug habit that he had. I mean, by the time he was 16 years old, he was uh, smoking PCP for breakfast. They uh, they used quite a bit of their life savings to put him in South Oaks, um, and he ran away from there five times until finally he, uh, you know, as his friends put it in the Rolling Stone article, bullshitted his way out of there. You know, when you talk about his parents, Dick and Lynn Casso, uh, mm-hmm. the way they come off in the book initially is as frustrated parents who have these uh was it three other kids yeah it was ricky was the oldest and then there was kelly jody and wendy and um by all accounts uh all of the parental ambitions were laid on uh ricky's shoulders and when it became clear to dick casso that he wasn't going to live up to them they pretty much you know, wiped their hands of him and then focused on the sisters. And not to do a retelling of the book, because folks should actually go and buy The Acid King is what they should do, available (laughs) as a... It's interesting, because Simon True, as you mentioned, a YA true crime imprint, I'm not sure there's been one yet, so it's a pretty interesting experiment Mm -hmm. that they're trying here. But... um, his his desires for his son really centered on sports, didn't they? I mean, he was a coach, and he yeah. wanted his kid to be an athlete and hopefully at a professional level. Very much so. Um, I mean, and Dick Casso came from that background as well. His uh, his own father, Alfred Casso, was a, a minor league baseball player that had some success. Uh, Dick himself was a star athlete in school and then later became a, a wrestling coach and a, a football coach over at Cold Spring Harbor High School. So there was very much this idea that Ricky, who is, you know, essentially Dick Casso Jr., he's Richard Allen Casso Jr., uh, was going to carry on the family legacy of being, you know, the next Johnny Unitas. And for a while, it looked like that was going to happen. Uh, Ricky was a pretty decent athlete. Um, he was like most of the other kids in Northport around that time. He would get up early before it was time to go to school and he would play, uh, you know, football on the block with his friends. Uh, it was a very, very suburban, white bread American, you know, white picket fence dog in the yard existence. But around sixth or seventh grade, he, uh, and not to get too after school special on this, but he started smoking pot. Things led to other things and eventually. He didn't want to do sports anymore, and his father took it very badly. One of the triumphs, by the way, in this book, I'm talking with Jesse Pollock, author of The Acid King, available now from Simon True, that revisits this famous uh, Northport murder from the 1980s. But one of your triumphs, I think, was drilling down on these Long Island archetypes, because I'm telling you, I grew up next to to a version Mm -hmm. of Dick Casso. I grew up next to the father with the crew cut, uh, who yes. considered himself, um, you know, a storied high school athlete who wanted his son to be good at those things, too. I mean, my dad, I didn't have that kind of pressure. He was a mechanic. He, he, he hardly cared Same about here. sports. <laughs> yeah, he, my dad hardly cared about sports. But I remember other dads in the neighborhood, that was what they thought their kids should be doing. You know, they should be playing baseball. They should be playing football. Soccer wasn't even part of the equation. 
No, no. When I was a kid, soccer's for girls. Well, that's for softball and lacrosse. Real men don't play that. And and like you just said, um, my father as well. He was a mechanic for for very many years. Now he's in the uh, the uh, body shop business. But um, I didn't have that kind of pressure. My parents were really cool in the sense that, like I said, they both went to art school. So they were like, whatever you want to do, go for it. We believe in you. You know, for better or worse. I had the kind of you know, Mister Rogers. You know, you can do anything you want. Um, existence, but there were other kids that I went to school with, and I was on Little League just because I saw the Sandlot when I was a kid, and I was like, that looks like a lot of fun. I want to go play baseball. And I would just go there to have a good time, but I would watch other parents of my friends, you know, in the bleachers, just kicking things over and hopping up and down and be like, Taylor, no, no, that's not how you do it. And even at like six years old, I was like, something's kind of wrong here. But that's that's the dark side of the suburbs that a lot of people don't like to talk about. Let's stay with this for a minute because it's kind of what got me into punk rock and into a punk (laughs) rock band is because I couldn't take that part of the suburbs, namely the conformity that went on and the idea that there is a path and you are going to follow that path. And I know Mm -hmm. the path. And so while reading this, I mean, I just, and I said, you know, I mentioned it was one of the triumphs. I think the other thing that you really get at in this book is uh, putting a human face on Ricky Casso because we didn't, I'm not sure we knew this kid all that well from other accounts. And no, and in this case, you get to see the tragedy of what happened to him, that he was sort of abandoned by his parents, who uh, understandably frustrated. Again, he ran away from rehabilitation five times. He, he was incorrigible in many ways. They did not know how to deal with him, and many adults didn't. I mean, his parents weren't the only adults that dismissed him and, and sort of uh, pushed him to the side, were they? No, not at all. And um, that was one of the biggest shockers in this uh, whole experience putting this book together for me because I went into it with the uh, the notion of this kid that all of us, you know, outside of Northport had. It was this kid uh, sprouted from the ground, ready to strike. He's this awful devil worshiper, was always a problem child. His poor parents did everything that they could, and society did everything they could. And as I got closer and closer into it, I was surprised, you know, like talking to friends of Gary Lowers's, and they're telling me, like, you know, this whole thing fucked me up so bad because Ricky was my friend too, and I still feel bad for Ricky. And it's like, well, this kid killed your best friend in the woods and led tours to his body, and you pity him? And they're like, yeah, you have to understand what this kid came from. And the more and more that I interviewed his friends, I interviewed uh, his social workers that had been de facto counselors to this kid for two years, I interviewed his sister, Wendy, And this portrait emerged of a child that deviated from what his father wanted from him and became persona non grata to the people that should have been there the most for him uh, by the time he was 14 years old. And this is another part of the story that um, we had always been told, oh, he had always run away from home. He had run away from home. And then talking to his friends and his sister, no, he was thrown out. He was thrown out and forced to live in the woods as early as 14 years old. Uh, absolutely no sense of foundation. 
as a, a, a young teenager, parents that he can't trust to take care of him or, you know, he can't trust to confide in them. He's on his own. So what does he turn to? You know, he's got to make money somehow. He's got to put food in his stomach. He turns to selling drugs. First, you know, a little bit of pot behind the uh, the ground round restaurant in Northport. Then, oh, well, let me sell some purple microdots. Then it's, oh, let me sell some blotter acid. Then, oh, well, let me go into the South Bronx and buy PCP to sell to people because no one's selling that in Northport and I can make a lot of money off of this novelty. And it just all spiraled out of control there. And it's it's really, really not hard to see the trajectory here. And like I said, I, I don't want to get all after school special with it. But unfortunately, it is a story where um, this kid turned to drugs to kind of numb himself from the pain of not having a proper family existence, I suppose. And it's okay, pot, then, you know, acid, then PCP, it all spiraled out of control. And that's not even getting into the the obsession with the occult that this kid had. There were a lot of factors in this case, but I really honestly believe the biggest one is this kid sincerely felt that no one gave a fuck about him. Yeah, and I think the other factor is the crucible of Northport because you talk about mm -hmm. a couple of parks in Northport where they were like no man, you know, no man's zones. They were, they yeah. were, they were not. They were even though they were patrolled by the police. The police looked the other way because uh, what was the problem with what was it? Uh, Cow Harbor Park was part of Cow Harbor Park, which is uh, it's called the New Park by uh, by people who grew up there because the main park um, on the uh, I believe it's the north side of Northport, but basically um, Northport Village Park, the one with the bandstand, um, has been there for much longer, but. Cow Harbor Park with the famous gazebo that was in all the news coverage that had, you know, Satin and Gary 666 carved in it. That was built in the late 70s, and it was put there by the town of Huntington. Northport is a village of Huntington, so basically because it's this little satellite village, Huntington was able to come in and go, we're going to put this park at the end of Main Street, and it's going to be really great for you guys. It's going to revitalize downtown. It, we're going to put a kid's playground there and uh, and benches for people to look at the marina and a gazebo for people to play chess in. It's going to be wonderful. And Northport said, we don't want this. The, you know, we already have a village park that's very nice. This is going to cause us nothing but trouble. And Huntington said, no, no, no. We think this is what's best for you. Well, I guess no one was in touch with the police or zoning or anything like this when it happened, because when they put this park there in, I believe it was 1976, um, they forgot that by law, Huntington could not put police patrol a piece of property that was physically outside of Huntington, and Northport Village could not legally police patrol a park that was not legally owned by Northport. So Huntington threw a piece of property that Huntington owned in someone else's town. So yeah, it became a legal no man's land and the kids figured this out really damn quick. They were like, hey, you know, we can just go and fill up a guitar case with 200 joints and sell them in the park and no one's going to bother us. And I had kids tell me, well, they're, they're 50 years old now, but the kids from back then told me, Oh yeah, you know, you could sit with a, a you know, a beer between your legs in the park 
and uh, a cop wouldn't bother you about it. So it was it, this weird breeding ground for uh, juvenile delinquency. I uh, One of them told me it was like a mini Woodstock in there, so... And in that hierarchy, Ricky Casso and Gary Lars, where would you place them in terms of uh, when they walked into that park? Where, where, did everybody know them? Did everybody like them? Well, after all, Ricky was the acid king. Right. But um, And, and that was kind of facetious, too. Um, yes, Ricky was pretty much the chief supplier of PCP in that area because it really hadn't been a problem or an issue on Long Island for... I want to say a decade and a half. Like, PCP has this weird history. Um, it was developed as an anesthetic. Uh, it it had a little bit of usage in the 60s during the Summer of Love. Like, that's where PCP comes from. They were called peace pills. And they kind of went away. They fell out of, uh, out of fashion, much like uh, purple microdots have since fallen out of fashion. But there was this resurgence in the early 80s, and Casso was partly responsible for it being available on the uh, North Shore. Also known as Angel Dust, because, mm-hmm. I mean, that that's a phrase that made it into songs I remember from that era about getting dusted. I remember uh, yes. when I hung out with my friends in Brooklyn and Queens, they knew about getting dusted. I had no idea <laughs> And it's some scary shit, too. You ever talk to someone that accidentally smoked PCP without knowing it? Yeah, because they would use it as an accelerant on on bad pot, wouldn't they? They'd take... Yeah, super joints. And they would sprinkle some some angel dust on it because it was shitty weed. Yeah. Oh, no, you don't do that with dirt weed. You drink some whiskey with it. (laughs) God, amateurs. But, um... But yeah, and and I'm sure, you know, everyone listening right now, if they don't have a personal horror story with accidentally smoking dusted weed, they know someone who has, and the experience is kind of traumatic, because the stuff does some weird things to you. But um, yeah, Ricky was known as the Acid King, because he was the guy that had the hallucinogens and the PCP. Gary is more of a cipher. Gary... It's weird, like, Gary's home relationship was only slightly better than Casso's. Uh, he was a kid that wanted desperately to be liked. And and we've such, all known that kid. I, I've known that kid. Yeah. I've known the, the kid, kid who's, tries who's trying too hard, who is trying to buy friends by, you know, paying for people's food, by buying them stuff. And there's just something about them that is not quite right. People sense it and thereby shun them and they these are people that are desperate for some affection and they're they're very exploitable unfortunately and um what had happened with him was eventually you know after getting bullied um in northport junior high gary was a good looking kid you know he had this head of blonde hair blue eyes great smile girls really liked him and that was part of his downfall um other kids, jocks, and of the like at that school noticed, oh, well, girls are liking this kid, so we're going to bully him even harder. You know, push him into lockers, calling him a faggot, all of this stuff. And uh, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, you know, it really does affect your sense of self, your your concept of belonging in this world. So the kid became desperate. He, you know, like, well, if I can't fit in with, you know, people that are doing all right, screw it. I'll go hang out with the misfits and I'll go smoke pot behind the ground round. And, you know, I'll hang out with my friends that are, you know, doing midnight auto, breaking into cars and stealing stereos to uh, 
to fence so we could buy some more pot and some booze. And he very quickly fell into that crowd. And it's weird because, you know, like we talked about, there are people in Northport that do look at him the way that you talked about. Like, oh, he was this kid that tried too hard. You know, he was kind of annoying. You know, you could smell it from a mile away. But he also did have a core group of friends that really did care about him and were very concerned for him. So he was a kid that was constantly torn between two worlds, and I think that's where his downfall ultimately laid. Talking with Jesse Pollock, author of the new book, The Acid King, available from a new imprint from uh, Simon & Schuster called Simon True, which is true crime pitched at the young adult audience. Will it come out in that new format I was reading about in the Times that they're bringing over from the Netherlands? Have you seen these? No, what's that about? It's, it's I forget what the hell the 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 Scandinavian word is for them. It's dingvalas or something like that. It's it's a cool. tiny little book that fits in your back pocket, and it, you read it in a horizontal format. You don't uh, hold oh, it vertically. Oh, that's kind of cool. But it opens up, and and they're, they're they're releasing new books in that format. So maybe you uh, talk to the folks at Simon True say, I want that new format for my new yeah. book. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's, you know, we're, we're drilling down on this case that took place in Northport in uh, 1984 that led to a, a, a national outcry that went all the way to uh, to the highest reaches of Congress to uh, to did, didn't Tipper Gore get involved in this at some point? Wasn't there wasn't she part of the uh, the whole we got to stop our kids from listening to this backmast? Oh, yeah, the PMRC, man. It was it was crazy. And it was this case and the Judas Priest suicides that uh, really kicked off that whole thing. Um, for whatever reason, more people remember the Judas Priest incident. Well, because a guy because... blew his face off is probably what. Well, yeah, and, and it also resulted in, you know, poor Rob Halford having to get on the stand and, you know, sing his lyrics in front of a judge. But, um, you know, this was right before it. I think it was a year and a half before. And, you know, if you're a suburban housewife or, you know, a very evangelical father and you open up the newspaper and you've been told by the church and by conservative society for years that, no, they're out there, these devil worshippers, they're going to get you kids, and they're going to they're gonna taint your daughter's mindset, and they're going to ruin your son's future, and all this stuff. And then you open up Newsday, or the New York Times, or any other of the national papers, and there's this dirtbag from Long Island staring right at you, right into your soul on the front page. And he's he's got leaves in his hair, he's all greasy. And he's got this ACDC shirt with a demon on it. And it says cultist held in Long Island demon slaying and all this. All of a sudden, the religious right and evangelical uh, Christians and Republicans and all this had the ammunition they needed because it was confirmation. See, we told you these kids are devil worshippers and they're killing each other in the woods. There was a bonfire and a... 150 robed cultists chanting as they cut this kid's eyes out and made him say he loved Satan while he died. We told you. Oh, so. man. Let me ask you a philosophical question at this point, because I, I think of you as a philosophical sort, Jesse Pollock. Um, I try. Why do we need to come up with supernatural reasons for things? The natural world supplies us with enough reasons for murder 
So what do you what what is it is it the religious mindset that's because they're already involved in the supernatural that they have to default to the supernatural this must be the devil this must be evil afoot I think so I think it was because for a while leading up to this the devil had fallen into the world of metaphor um there were a lot of people that just did not you know the, the idea of this guy with horns and a you know, a scepter and a tail and all this stuff. Like, that's that's not real. You know, God's real, but, you know, the, this idea of this monster running around, this trickster, nah, no way. And then with the rise of evangelical Christianity in America in the 70s and 80s, suddenly the devil, again, became a very real thing for these people. This was not euphemism. This was not cartoons. It was, no, the devil is a real entity and he's coming for your kids, and he's going to steal your soul, you're going to end up in hell for all of eternity, yada, yada, yada. So I think that, you know, as you had mentioned before, the groundwork was laid. So by the time that this had happened, the you know, for a very significant portion of Americans, the devil was a very, very real concept. It was not a metaphor, it was not an allegory. The devil was real. And one of his disciples was just arrested in Northport for dragging a kid into the woods and stabbing him to death in a sacrifice. So it was this perfect storm. And in its own way, it leads to Ricky Casso adopting this satanic pose, shall we call it, because he knows it's going to frighten people and piss people off and scare them. He himself doesn't believe any of it. I mean, isn't he asked at one point if he actually believes in the devil? And he, he, and he really... He has a, a sort of a passing knowledge of it based on books he's read at the library, but otherwise he's he's no actual Satanist. He's not following the tenets of Anton LaVey, is he? Not really. Not at all. Uh, I mean, he's become this sort of satanic martyr in a sense. He's an anti-hero. He's taken on almost a uh, folk hero quality for you know, teenagers in this country that have been maligned by society. But the fact of the matter is, is this was 1984. This kid did not have access to, you know, medieval grimoires and, you know, sacred texts and all this stuff. No, he was a kid that went into the village bookstore and bought a copy of Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible for four bucks and read whatever he could find at the Northport Public Library, which is not much. So... He knew as much about the devil as Ozzy Osbourne did. It was something that gave his life meaning. It's but it also kept adults at arm's length, did it not? Yeah, and and it gave him it gave him a sense of power. I have something now that makes adults afraid of me, and I may be living in the woods and eating bologna sandwiches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but I'm someone now. I'm something. These, you know, these people are afraid of me. And he really doubled down on that when he dug up a grave and got caught for it. Yeah, we haven't even gotten into the grave robbing aspects of the story yet. We're talking with mm -hmm. Jesse Pollock, and uh, he's author of the new book, The Acid King, which reexamines this murder in Northport in 1984 when I was still living on Long Island. And I remember the ripple effect that this was having. I remember what it was doing to anybody who was in a band anybody who had long hair, or anybody who looked like a dirt bag. Mm. We were all coming under increased scrutiny because of what happened here. Um, 
But why was it so easy for those who might have actually been responsible for this turn of events, namely his parents, namely the elders of Northport, to duck blame for what took place? Because they were all complicit. All right, you know, it's it's an absolute myth to assume that, oh, the Cassos were the only family with trouble on, you know, suburban Long Island. Um, Casso wasn't the only kid living in the woods. He wasn't the only one smoking PCP. He was the one selling it. He was the one bringing it in from the Bronx, but the kid had customers. Uh, it was very, very easy for these parents to turn a blind eye towards each other because glass houses. Um, it was a time where, and I go into it in the book. For example, um, some of Ricky's friends recounted an incident for me where they were playing baseball in their backyard and they heard a commotion coming from the Casso house a couple doors down. And then all, they they ran towards the house. You know, they heard a violent confrontation. And all of a sudden they saw Ricky thrown through the back screen door of the Casso house, literally launched through the door. And his father chasing after him, trying to beat him up. And he ran and fled into the woods where he later killed Gary, where he was sleeping. And... A lot of them say, you know, nowadays his father would have been arrested for that. But back then, if you would try to call the police on a parent for doing that, they would tell you, mind your own fucking business. It's not your kid. It was a very different time. Teachers would encourage fistfights in class between kids that weren't getting along. There was this whole mindset of tough love. It's like, if you're not going to be a productive member of society and, ad and adhere to my rules, I'm going to beat it into you and you're going to like it. And it, it was not isolated to the Casso household. Uh, there were dozens of kids in Northport that were crashing on couches, living in cars, sleeping in the woods, sleeping in the park. Because as they grew into adolescence, they were not what their parents wanted of them. So the parents, instead of working with them and talking with them and having an open line of communication and empathy and, and being compassionate... They just say, get the fuck out of my house. I want nothing to do with you. And Yeah, I'm kind of familiar yeah. with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Been there. I kind of related. I, you know, and I, it's interesting, too, because I thought of all the kids who picked up guitars back in the day, uh -huh. got into a band, and figured that was the vehicle by which they would channel some of these things. I knew a lot of kids who did that when they could have just as easily picked up a knife and stabbed somebody. And... So, I mean, there there are some heroes in this book. Let's talk for a minute about, uh, you know, some of the social workers who intercepted Ricky on this descent and who had this, uh, you know, brief window where they mm -hmm. might have been able to direct his energies elsewhere. Well, that was another surprising thing working on this case as well is, you know, the whole idea of Ricky was he was born bad. You know, as I mentioned before, he was born bad. He, you know, he sprouted from the ground ready to strike. Um, you know, he ran away from South Oaks. The kid did not want to help himself. And and that's just simply not true. It was, the kid could, he was a street kid. He could smell bullshit a mile away. And when he was in the care of therapists and doctors that were just doing things by the book and he did not get a sense of them actually caring, um... He just played the game. You know, he famously told his mother that I'll play the game, you know, if it makes you happy by going to this therapist or that therapist. And uh, 
But when he did encounter people that he felt had his best interests at heart, he did respond positively. And there was an organization in Northport called The Place. And it was called that because uh, the, the kids nicknamed it The Place on Main Street. And it got shortened to The Place. And it was basically... Um, a sort of youth drop-in center where these counselors would be available during certain hours and you could just drop in after school and say, you know, I'd really like to talk to someone about, you know, the stuff I'm going through at home or at school or with my peers. Um, there would be, you know, records there, a pool table, stuff like that. It was a safe place for kids to go and talk on their own. And Ricky dropped in there um, for two years he was seeing a counselor named Tony Ruggi and also seeing another counselor there named Susie Strakov. And the, I interviewed Tony extensively for this book. And he told me, he goes, this kid tried so hard to get his shit together. It's not funny. He came in there and at one point when he was sleeping in the woods and said, would you facilitate contact between my father and I? Would you, would you mediate? Because I want to go home. I want to go back to school. Uh, you know, I want to get off drugs. You know, the, the, those are my goals. You know, he, his his counselor asked him, well, what, what do you want out of life? And he said, well, you know, maybe I'll graduate high school. I could get myself a job and uh, a little apartment for myself and maybe a girlfriend to watch TV with. You know, he lived in reality for a long time before he finally snapped. And so his, his counselor said, sure. He called up his father and of course, you know, his father said, well, you know, he can come back in my house if he cuts his hair. So Ricky went and got a haircut. He started wearing, quote unquote, decent clothes again. No more concert t-shirts and jeans. And he was doing okay for a few weeks. And then his father kicked him out of the house for cursing. Threw him back into the woods again. So it was. Oh, these the are the, by the way, these are the parts of the book that really broke my heart because it, it made me think of my relationship with my father. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I was in a punk rock band and I was wearing camouflage pants before people actually produced camouflage pants for the civilian market, you'd had to go to the Army Navy Service. Army Navy store. Camouflage pants, and I would wear. A black t-shirt. I mean, you know, I was wearing the shit that you wore if you were in a punk rock band. And my father would stop me in the kitchen and say, what is this uniform you have on? What are you rebelling against? And just and <laughs> you. <laughs> and I was a good kid. I, uh -huh. I didn't do any drugs. I wasn't smoking any pot. I hardly drank at all. I had the occasional beer. I uh -huh. was pretty. I had got I, I got pretty good grades in school. All I did was like play in a punk rock band and wear the kind of stuff that I like to wear. But but he was like Ricky Castle's dad in that he, you know, these superficial things he could not see past. No, it was all about keeping up appearances. He could not see past the appearances of things. So I and and Ricky seeing Ricky hoisted on that same petard was heartbreaking in a way because he what he you know underneath it all he was a good kid as you point out in this book who just couldn't find a way back into the hearth and home, could he? No, not at all. And he did try. He tried several times and then was cast away again for the dumbest of reasons, for cursing in the house, or um, he was accused of skipping school one day when he had just actually left a few minutes early with some friends. Uh, he tried. You know, he, like I said, he cut his hair. He stopped wearing, quote-unquote, dirtbag clothes. Um, and just nothing was, uh, was 
good enough for the father. The father, you know, saw him as, you know, you're my successor. You know, I had all these aspirations for you. You were supposed to do this. You were supposed to do that. And now you're just an embarrassment. And the the final straw came when he dug up the grave over in Crab Meadow Cemetery right outside of Northport because, well, let's just say an influence in his life, and I get into this in the book, a very strange character he knew downtown, had convinced him, because they both, they both had a shared interest in the occult, convinced him that he needed to dig up a grave to uh, retrieve a skull so they could do a ritual at the Amityville Horror House. And he dug into this colonial era uh, grave and by all accounts, he dug seven feet, did not find anything, gave up. And then while the police were investigating a different grave robbing, that's another thing about Northport too. Everyone likes to say, you know, oh, you know, people in Northport like to say this, mind you. Oh, Ricky Casso, yeah, he was one bad egg. You know, that, he was the worst thing that ever happened to us. Well, no. There were two separate grave robbing incidents in Northport within a six-month period of time, and they were committed by two completely different groups of people. And for different reasons. Wasn't one of them the someone wanted to sell a skull? They thought they can get some money for a skull? Yeah, and that was another uh, discovery while researching this book because as time has gone on, these two um, incidents were merged together by the media. Um, before it was updated, if you went on the Wikipedia page for Ricky Casso, it had said that, that, oh, he was arrested because he stole a skull in a hand and tried selling it in New York or, you know, something like that. And that was the other incident. Basically, a friend of Ricky's named Randy Guffler was arrested um, in the spring of 84 because he and another friend broke into a mausoleum on a, I think it was Laurel Avenue, I think it is. Uh, it's uh, Either way, it's another cemetery on a completely other side of town. And they broke into this mausoleum and pried off the lid of this casket and stole this guy's skull and his hand because someone had told them, and rumor has it it's the same person who uh, later tried getting Ricky to dig up this grave. Um, someone had told them, oh yeah, uh, if you can get a real human skull, there's this head shop in New York that'll give you $600 for it. Because they, they like to turn them into mugs. So, they broke in and successfully took the skull in hand. And mind you, Ricky was not a part of this. But Ricky saw the hand later on and i think you know like that kind of got you know things like stirring in his head like oh other kids are doing this i could do this too this seems kind of interesting so um but yeah that kid got arrested ratted ricky out for digging up uh the grave in crab meadow and ricky got arrested too but because they couldn't prove that he had taken anything from the grave he was only charged with a misdemeanor whereas randy was charged with a felony so there was this high-profile thing in the two months leading up to the murder where these kids are getting busted in town for digging up graves. There are these rumors that there's a cult running around town called the Knights of the Black Circle, which these kids had nothing to do with. And so that was that own, like, the bigger picture with society and Rosemary's Baby and the Exorcist being the lead-up to the Satanic Panic. This was the microcosm of it in Northport. People were ready to believe that Casa was this 
uh, the skull-stealing satanic cult leader murderer because of the stuff with the grave digging and the Knights of the Black Circle leading up to it. But basically, he was uh, he was charged, and then Newsday got a hold of it, and for about eight months in 84, they had a little TV division called Inside Newsday. I don't know if you remember that, being a kid out there. They sent a camera crew down to Northport and found him in front of the local head shop, where he later bought the murder weapon, and they conducted this TV interview with him where he admitted to the grave robbing on TV. He's like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, I was into, you know, Satanism and drugs for a little bit there, so, uh, yeah, I did that. So, you know, in the moment, I guess he thought, okay, you know, this is my time to shine, I'll be a little, you know, new celebrity here, but he kind of forgot, oh, I'm relying on the charity of my friend's parents to sleep on their couches. And they all saw that thing on the news. And once that happened, no one was letting this kid sleep in their house anymore. They're like, no, your friend Ricky cannot crash here. I just saw him on the fucking TV bragging about stealing fucking body parts for Satan rituals. Don't think so. So... (laughs) That was part one of my sit-down with Jesse P. Pollock, author of the new book, The Acid King, available from Simon True, a new young adult true crime imprint from Simon & Schuster. You can find him online at simonandschuster.com slash teen. Jesse returns with me next week, and we'll finish up our sit-down and our conversation. Don't forget, Job Story is available via Apple and Google Podcasts. Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and YouTube. Go to shows.pippa.io slash jobstory for details. And submit your job story at jobstorypod at gmail.com or in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash jobstorypod. You can also record a job story of 90 seconds or less at speakpipe.com slash jobstory. Or record a longer job story by calling our job story line, Way for Job Pod. That's the number four. Way for Job Pod. Please share Job Story with your friends and family and be sure to review Job Story on iTunes and elsewhere. Until next time, this is Chris T. Working hard and hardly working. So, uh, you guys are my new co workers. So, working hard or hardly working? <laughs> I said, working hard or hardly working? Working hard or hardly working? Working hard or hardly working? It's a simple question! Are you A, working hard, or B, shout? <laughs> Suppose you tune in next week to see if I'm still on the job.